0: I wanna to read to you Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 1 and going all the way down to verse 15 because I wanna spend the next couple of weeks right here in this passage. There's just simply no way to tackle this text without looking at the totality of it. And then, of course, when you start doing that, you realize that uh, uh, it's, just, it's just not easy to break this text up into big chunks. You gotta take it in smaller sections. That's why I've devoted a couple of weeks to it after today. So let's begin verse one. Uh, This is what the word of God says. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. He says otherwise you have no reward with your father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving will be in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, They have their reward in full, but you, when you pray, go into the inner room, close your door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen. Forgive, for if you, if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Let's pray one more time. Well, Father, Lord, we come before you with hearts that are needy. And what we're needy for today, Lord, is authenticity we need to be authentic in the depth of who we are because you see us and you know us and you you try the hearts of men and father you say that you will judge the secret motives the hidden motives of men's hearts through the gospel and so Lord we cry out to you God give us hearts that are authentic before you. Give us sincerity, transparency. Give us holiness. Give us truth. Help us, Lord, to walk in the light as you are in the light. Help us to have truth in the inward parts where no one sees. Lord, we pray that we would be a people that are acquainted with the secret place, that we would steal away with you, that we would be in communion with you continually, constantly, that we would seek refuge in your presence and that we would commune with you in your word when no one even sees. Father, bless our time together, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I want to look at uh, this first section and I want to focus on verses one through four. And the very first thing that I want to point out as we sort of make our way towards the topic of prayer. Before we make our way to the topic of prayer, we need to make our way to the topic of piety in general. We need to talk about piety. In general. And the very first thing that you'll notice from the text is that it begins with a warning. It begins with a warning. And it says, Beware. You see that there? Beware. And so immediately, Jesus alarms us to a danger. There is a real danger in the text. And the danger in the text is hypocritical piety. Hypocritical piety. You know, when you look at the subject of prayer, prayer can be all sorts of different things, right? You look at prayer and you see, you can read about petitions and you can read about supplications and all that that means is that you make an earnest request to God, that you that you make a plea to God, that you that you literally beg God to hear your prayers. And prayers can be personal and prayers can be corporate and prayers can be mingled with worship and praise and prayers can even be a time of agony and we think of the prayer of our Lord Jesus in the garden that he he agonized with God in prayer but if there's one thing that prayer cannot be prayer cannot be hypocritical that is to say that if we would approach God with our lips as Jesus would teach us then we'd be ready to approach God with our hearts as well as a matter of fact we would say God get my heart ready to pray before we just rush into speaking audibly with the Lord let's commune with God secretly let's talk the the the, the language of the heart before we speak the language of our lips Let's go to God with our hearts and get right with him and meet with him. Because if there's one thing that we know from scripture is that God hates hypocrisy. All throughout the, the history of the children of Israel, he despised their worship. He despised their prayers, their offerings. He despised their celebrations, their feasts, their Sabbaths, their new moons. Why? Because they did these things in, under the pretext of religious hypocrisy. And so we are warned that, that God, just as he corrected Sarah when she laughed because of unbelief, just as he humbled David because of his unfaithfulness, just as he rebuked Peter for his apostasy and killed Ananias and Sapphira for their hypocritical greed, we know that when we pray, we are praying to a God who cares above everything about the state of our soul. You can craft the most eloquent prayer that you want. You can can fashion the most most emotional and eloquent and intricate type of prayer, but if your heart is not genuine before the Lord, it can be all for nothing. That's why the Bible says, put a guard over your heart, Proverbs chapter 4. Put a guard over your heart because out of it will flow all of the issues of life. And see, Scripture is just brutally honest at this point. It is telling us that we are depraved creatures, that our hearts are not trustworthy, that we cannot trust even our own heart. But as Jeremiah said, our heart is desperately sick. It is desperately evil. It's wicked. Who can know but the Lord? Kent Hughes talks about the hypocritical uh, nature of our heart. When he says, we are so subtly sinful that we can refrain from an outward show of giving, and then we can pat ourselves on the back for our own profound humility. You see how subtle sin is in the heart. We have to constantly be on guard and be on check. When well, this is what Jesus wants them to know. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men. And so I want to give us. A couple of things. I want to give us two reasons why hypocritical piety is so dangerous, even disastrous to our souls, according to his text. Number one is that it forfeits the reward of God when he says, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. The consequence is this. Otherwise, you have no reward from your father in heaven. And so it immediately puts us in a position where we can forfeit the holy things that we do before a holy God. And so God is constantly testing the quality of our piety, testing the quality, not just of our prayer, not just of our worship, but of everything that we do. Because as Romans chapter 12 tells us, all of our life is worship before the Lord. There is no sphere that you can go into in this society where you are no longer worshiping God. There's a real sense that when you walk in the doors of your your employment place, when you go to work, there is a sense in which you get in the car and drive and get in traffic. You're just going from one sphere of worship to the other. And the only question is, is how's your worship doing at rush hour? Uh, I hope you got your hands up like you, well, not many of you raise your hands, but if you do, you, I hope you lift up your hands just like you do in, 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 in the sanctuary as you're worshiping God here when you're sitting in traffic and someone's cutting you off. You may say, well, that's just kind of an over." that oh, this is over expectancy I mean i don 't know if I could do that well, listen, be careful because if you 're not in an attitude of worship, if you 're not in an attitude where you 're communing with God, the flesh will take advantage right away and trust me you 'll be in a carnal attitude before you know what happened and so it is so good to know that God cares about the state of our soul no matter what we 're doing, no matter what no matter where we 're at now. When Jesus began his warning, when Jesus began to instruct his disciples about the nature of true piety, there is a background, right? Every, con- every text has a context. And what is the context of what Jesus is saying? Jesus is implicating the Pharisees, as he often does. And uh, that's just sort of a hermeneutical principle, by the way. Whenever you're reading the Gospels, always, always be on guard where, where are the Pharisees? Look for those Pharisees. Find those Pharisees in the text. You may have to go two chapters back to find where Jesus is actually speaking about the Pharisees and interacting with the Pharisees to unlock the meaning of a certain passage. The Pharisees and their Pharisaical hypocr- hypocrisy is crucial To interpreting the text as a matter of fact when Jesus says don't practice your righteous deeds before men when Jesus says that we ought not give in front of others what Jesus is talking about is something rooted in the culture of Judea at this time during this time the Pharisees were involved in a systematic collection of money for the poor That is to say, there were whole groups of people that would go around the different provinces and the different communities and systematically collect money from the community for the poor. Well, the Pharisees would make a huge show out of that. They would make like this big pompous celebration out of those things and make sure that everyone in the community saw how much they were giving. And so that they would be noted for their for their piety, so that their piety would be recognized on a grander scale, see this everything has to do with the aristocracy of the Pharisees these there were aristocrats, in other words, they were they were powerful religious people that had influence over the the, the, the the masses of the people in Judea, and they were so zealous to protect their power and their influence that's sort of the background and not only do they want to be recognized by men, but also their, their craving, their, their need, their greed for public recognition also assured that they would lose their reward. Jesus said, otherwise you have no reward with your father in heaven. And as you begin to see what Jesus is teaching here, it goes all the way back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus begins to lay out the kingdom ethics, we could say, for his children. He says in chapter five, verse 45, that if we forgive our enemies, we will, be, we will be children of God. It has everything to do with our connection to our heavenly Father, of being like him, and that's why we do not engage in religious hypocrisy. We don't engage in token prayers. We don't engage in, in uh, you know, religious ceremonies just for the sake of rote repetition. No, God wants us to be totally authentic in everything that we do. And I love that because it means that God loves us so much that he doesn't want us to waste our time. He doesn't want us to... Don't waste your religion. Don't waste your prayer. Don't waste your going to church realize and recognize that there is a real propensity within your heart to be hypocritical acknowledge that pharisaical streak within you and repent of it and do what's right in the eyes of God or else you too will forfeit your heavenly reward. I mean, it's one thing just to be honest with yourself and say, you know what? If I'm honest with myself, I have to feel this danger that Jesus is talking about. I have to confess that I have a propensity to do things for the sake of others. And when I look over my deeds, my works that I do in the presence of other people, dare I say, I have often been a hypocrite. It begins by acknowledging that. And and for ministers, this is a really huge problem. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is all about that. The minister's authenticity in ministry. Now, this is just one example, so I'm kind of picking on myself right now. But this is good because this also speaks of losing reward. And You can be in ministry serving the Lord, preaching the word, serving God's people, and you can see your rewards burn up on the day of judgment, just vanish. You can build a giant church. You can build a beautiful church. You can have a mass empire, if you would, of social media. And on the last day, you can see it all go up in a puff of smoke if you did not do it with the right heart. If you did not build faithfully, if you didn't obey his commandments, if you went beyond the doctrine of Christ, if you didn't do the will of God, First Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10, so this is what Paul's talking about, ministers who are not building faithfully. And he says, according to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. And another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. That is referring to how you do ministry. And he says, For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold and silver and precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each man's work will become evident so the analogy there is that these elements represent the way that you do things the motive that you do it with and he says for the day will show you see that the day will reveal because it is to be revealed with fire and there speaking of God's judgment fire if you would as we sit or as we stand before the judgment seat of Christ the fire of God's judgment will come in and will refine our hearts will test our souls will test our works and it will reveal the dross of our motives. And he says, the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on, uh, uh, he has built on it remains, he will receive reward. So this is what a faithful minister is after. And this is what you're after in every one of your deeds that you do for God. Everything that you do. You want your reward to remain. You want to receive reward. He says, if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet as through fire. It is not a salvific testing that Paul has in mind there, but it can have that effect. You can be, in the final day, a hypocrite. You can be, in the final day, you can turn out to be a Pharisee. Your religion was all show, was all pretension. And you had no genuine salvation in your heart. I'm comforted, however, by Spurgeon at this point. Oh, it took me forever ever to find this quote by Spurgeon. It was a test of my <laughs> motives after a while of why I was chasing. I was so after this quote. I couldn't find it anywhere. I had heard it somewhere and I had a little semblance of it in my mind. And after an hour or two of Google and Logos and I found it. Metropolitan Tabernacle Sermon, Sermon uh, 2034. I can't believe it. So anyway, I found it. <clears throat> this is what Spurgeon said he says do you not dear brethren and sisters in Christ sometimes feel how hard it is for you to be saved when you put your soul before the tribun- tribunal of your own enlightened conscience our conscience at best is a poor partial judge compared to the impartial and infallible judge who will sit upon the great white throne yet I ask any Christian here who is really aware of his own frailty and of his own infirmities. I have turned over my own sermons and my own labors for the Lord, but there is scarcely one of them that I dare to think of without tears. Spurgeon says, They are all marred by sin and imperfection. As I think of every act that I have ever done for God, I can only cry out, Oh God, forgive the iniquity of my holy things. Is that our hearts to look over our labors and say, God, my whole life, I, I ask that you forgive the iniquity even of my holy things that I do. The imperfection of my motives when I serve you, when I sing to you, when I preach to you, when I serve in your church. See, this is the difference between genuine fruit and what Jesus is going to talk about here in terms of superficial fruit. That's the second danger. First, it forfeits our reward. And secondly, it also produces superficial fruit when we are hypocrites. In a sense, it is a double negative to be a hypocrite because not only will you lose reward in that day, but as Scripture is telling us what you may gain in this life, your temporal rewards, the temporal realization is actually no reward at all. And that's why Jesus says in verse 2 there, going back to Matthew 6, 2, he says, when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you. See, the trumpet there is a metaphor for calling attention to yourself. It wasn't as if, and there's no historical record of of the Pharisees going out and blowing trumpets and drawing attention to themselves. No, it's probably, according to most commentators, just a metaphor for drawing attention to yourself. But that's all we need to get the picture He says, as the hypocrites do this in the synagogues and in the streets, revelation for us, you can do this in the church and in the streets. You can be a hypocrite right in here, just like you can be a hypocrite out there. Get that straight. So, he says, so that, this is their ultimate motive, and this is how you know the difference. Because I know probably in your mind right now you're thinking, well, then how do I know? I mean, how do I know I'm doing this right? I don't want to be a hypocrite. I want to make sure my motives are clean. But how do I know I do so many religious things? How do I make sure that I'm not a hypocrite? Well, the key is that phrase right there. It's the purpose clause. So that they may be honored by men. You want the pastor to think well of you? You want your brothers and sisters to be impressed by you? You want your co-workers to... Uh, give you a good reputation and applaud your work. Is that why you're doing why you're doing what you're doing? You're doing it so that you can receive honor by men. It's such a dangerous motive because it's so potent. glorify. Listen, it is, it is so wrong because it is God's inherent in God's own nature to be glorified. But when we desire to be glorified, is it a total distortion of God's purpose and God's design? We are not meant to be glorified in this way. And he says, truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full, which is actually sort of a hyperbolic way of saying there is no reward in this. There is no reward that they're gaining from this. This is all just a scam. It's all a sham. It's really nothing. It's really a fake reward. It's not really a true reward. And that's why when Jesus says they have the reward in full, he means basically, this is all that they're going to get. All that they get is this recognition right now, which is really nothing, because it doesn't invest in anything eternal. Whatever looks they get, whatever applause they get, whatever looks of approval, whatever reputation they might make for themselves. That is it. That is the extent of it all. That's the extent. Of it all and therefore what is the difference what is the difference in true piety true piety this is the next thing that I want to talk about the difference of true piety has everything to do with secrecy I love it because God is there in secret God it even says that 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 God who sees in secret you see that and then it says that, that the Father look at verse seven or verse six again, "The Father who is in secret." See that? There is this sort of this hidden truth, this hidden reality that should exist in all of our hearts, this secret communion with God, where we are constantly communing with the Lord in the depth of our heart in the secret place where no one sees. This is the way to gain real reward. And let me tell you something. Jesus gives us all of the, he gives us all license to pursue reward, to pursue treasure. Doesn't it sound kind of selfish? Oh, you're only doing this to get treasure in heaven? Yes, you want your treasure to be in heaven. Look at chapter six, verse 19. Jesus says in chapter 6 verse 19, do not store up for yourself treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but, and now here's the positive command, store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. That is a license to get as much eschatological reward as you can. Make sure that your treasure's in heaven where neither moth, rust destroys, or thieves break in. Or steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What Jesus is saying is the equivalent of what the Apostle Paul said in Galatians chapter 5 after listing off the fruit of the Spirit. He says, Against such things, there is no law. There's no rule that says you can't be righteous. There's no rule that says you can't do things with a good, righteous heart, with good motives. There is no excess in that. You can be, to quote the old cliche, you can be as righteous as you want to be, and no one's going to fault you for it, least of which is not God. God is not going to fault you for it. God is going to reward you for it. I mean, think of reward. Think of treasuring up. Think of storing up, right? Of investing, if you would, investing in your heavenly reward. It challenges us, doesn't it? Stockbrokers lose sleep and commit suicide trying to secure their temporal assets. And what I say, what I would say is we should be losing sleep over trying to secure our heavenly assets because those types of assets will last. Those types of assets will stand the test of time. They will never be destroyed, never be stolen, never be taken away. And that's why it's so imperative for us to do what we do with the right heart not so that we can be seen by other people but so that we can be rewarded by God himself but in order to ensure a heavenly reward and that it will be there when we go there we need to make sure that we're investing in the right way we need to make sure that we have a view of our piety that is pure and right and good God will test all of our deeds, brothers and sisters. Romans chapter 2, verse 5. If I can read this to you. Romans chapter 2, verse 5. It's not only the deeds of the wicked that will be judged, but it's our deeds. And that's why Paul says that everybody will be rendered whatever has been done according to your deeds. To those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality. Eternal life. That is what they're going to get. Eternal life but those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness wrath and indignation verse 9 there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and of the Greek also but glory listen to this now glory honor peace for everyone who does good to the Jew first and to the Greek also That's right. In doing good, we will receive glory, honor, peace. In other words, this is a way of saying that God rewards the righteous for their righteousness. It is not that you're gaining your salvation. Of course not. Hopefully we know better than that by now, right? It's not that we're gaining our salvation by doing righteous deeds, but we are doing what scripture tells us to do by working our salvation out in fear and in trembling. So there is there is the difference of true piety. It begins with the power of private piety. Now, you've got to remember, You got to remember this. Picture yourself. You're a Jew in in the first century. You are accustomed every day, just part of life, part of society. You are accustomed to seeing the Pharisees parade themselves around, draw attention to themselves, become magnified for their good deeds. And Jesus steps in and says, don't do any of that. Be nothing like that and do not envy. Would it not be easy for you to grow up in a culture like that and look with envy to those aristocrats who are receiving all the praise, all the credit for false piety? The scripture tells us not to be envious of evildoers. You remember the psalm that Asaph wrote? Asaph, Pastor Chris preached on this, but Asaph, Remember, as he began to talk about coming near to apostasy, what was the problem? He had his eyes on the prosperity of the wicked. Isn't that easy for us to do in our culture, in our society? We look around at how good the wicked have it. They seem to suffer no consequence. They can be as wicked as they want to be and nothing happens to them. We can be tempted to think along those lines if we're not careful. And sort of the reflexive idea of that would be, and look at me. Here I am trying to be righteous, trying to do what's good, trying to do what's right. And what happens to me? I suffer trials. I go through affliction. I get persecuted. My family falls apart. I have all sorts of problems, financial problems, because I'm trying to do things integrously. I don't have as much money as the next person. I can't compete with the Joneses. I'm not even considered a Jones. I don't have the money to buy all the landscaping stuff and I don't have the money to buy the brand new cars and do all the things that the neighbors are doing turn with me to Psalm 73 Psalm 73 it is actually Psalm 37 that says do not fret because of evil doers be not envious towards others and that would include the hypocrite but Psalm 73 verse 3 says For I was envious of the arrogant and I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You see that for there are no pains in their death. Their body is fat, which is doesn't mean they're actually fat. It means that they're healthy. It just seems like they're just prosperous, right? They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eyes bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. It seems like there's no no limit to the wickedness that they're allowed to engage in. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. In other words, it's almost like they're taking the place of God. They have set their mouth against the heavens. They're blasphemers and then their tongue parades through the earth. What Asaph is saying is that it seems like there is no retribution for the wicked. But as the psalm will go on to say, in fact, there is retribution for the wicked. And in fact, their seeming prosperity is actually very short-lived, right? Very short-lived. It says in, in verse 17, until I came into the sanctuary, then I perceived their end. I saw when I got a glimpse of the holiness of God in his sanctuary. Then I got a clue of what will be the end of the wicked one day. And it is horrifying beyond belief. It is destruction. And he says, surely they set themselves in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. Just like that in a moment I mean think about think about the people at 9-11 many of them very wealthy well-to-do right good jobs corporate jobs going back to work every other day probably blaspheming taking God's name in vain thinking that they're living high on the hog thinking that they have it all together thinking that their own that their own strength has brought them to this point point. and in a moment they're flying out of a hundred stories building to their death. God sets them in slippery places and he casts them down in one moment to destruction, just like that. And so, we've no need, brothers and sisters, to envy anybody. You know what it means not to be a hypocrite? It means to be like Jesus. What Jesus is calling his disciples to do is to imitate him. The opposite of hypocrisy is total 100% authenticity. And that's what Jesus was. Jesus spoke the truth all the time. Never failed to be pleasing to the Father, John chapter 8. And in John chapter 7, he reveals that everything that he did, he did it with a a pure heart. Not just a pure heart, but he did it with a selfless heart. Not just a selfless heart, but he did it with a sacrificial heart. And again, comparing himself to the Pharisees who did everything for their own name, their own sake, their own reputation to be recognized of men. Jesus says in John seven, eighteen. he says, the one who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true. In other words, he is genuine and there is no unrighteousness in him. Therefore, Jesus is calling us to sort of a willful ignorance in giving, but in all of our piety. Not just giving, it should be there too. And I think many of us need that exhortation. How are we doing with something as basic as our giving to the Lord? Some of you don't give to the Lord. Some of you have resolved, I can't give to the Lord. I don't have the money to do that. I won't tithe, I won't give an offering, I won't do any of that. The church will just have to get along without me. And... I would say you are in great disobedience because of that, and you are going to suffer for that because Scripture says that whatever you sow, you will reap. In Galatians chapter 6, Jesus, uh, the Bible tells us plainly that if you're not financially giving to the local church, you will not prosper in the way that God has meant for you to prosper because whatever you sow, you will reap. And if you don't sow, if you've been sown to spiritual things, spiritual things, the Word of God, ministry of the church, and you are not giving back, Material things, then you are completely out of step with what it means to be a member in a church, let alone a Christian. No, you don't force your brothers and sisters to pick up the slack. You see, something as simple as giving, something as simple as praying will really shake us to the very core of, of our religion and why we do what we do. And lastly, not only is there not only is there power and private piety, the hidden motive of our heart, but there's also the promise of heavenly reward. Look at verses 3 and 4. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. You see that? Almost like a willful blindness. I don't want to know. I don't need to know. I don't need to make it public. I don't need to go around telling people what I'm doing, okay? Okay so that your giving will be in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. I love that because it implies several things. God takes note of your motives. God takes note of the good deed that you did. Don't worry about it. It didn't go unnoticed, right? Isn't that what we're tempted to believe? Nobody notices what I do in the church. Nobody notices how hard I work. Nobody notices how hard I pray. Nobody notices how hard I've been serving. Yes, somebody does notice. And as a matter of fact, the person who really notices is the only one that counts anyway. (laughs) To live this way is really the sanest possible way to live. Isn't it amazing that when we seek reward from men, we're seeking reward from a source that cannot reward us, no matter how much we try to please one another? And when we live as hypocrites, we, we actually forfeit the source of true reward, the only person who can actually reward us. It's just insane to live as a, as a hypocrite. And that's why the Father who sees everything, the Father who is repeated over and over in this text as the heavenly Father, why? Jesus is trying to stress the one who resides in heaven, He is the one who is in heaven, sovereign over heaven, sitting on his throne. He is the one that sees all and will ultimately reward or punish. He is the one who sees everything. In other words, is a call to total examination, examination in the light of heaven, examination for everything that we do, why we do it, the motive of our heart regarding everything that we do in the Christian life. I remember a story years back about a Hindu man who was seeking to appease one of his deities, and in doing that, he had chosen to lift his arm as long as he possibly could in order to appease his God. Well, his story actually ended up drawing international attention after he held his hand up for so long, for years, as a matter of fact, and it had shriveled up into a black ball. Well, I think Jesus would say to that man, You have your reward if that's what you want to consider reward. (laughs) You got the attention of everybody. Everybody saw your your external piety, what you're trying to do. But really, what did it do? It didn't do anything but shrivel up your hand. And that's the way that our works are. When we have a reward, a reward is not really a reward at all. It doesn't satisfy. It doesn't last. And it will not bless us in the end. And that's why... We have to test everything that we do. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Whatever you do, whatever, whether you eat or you drink, do all to the glory of God. Everything in the Christian life ultimately terminates on the glory of God. Why do you do everything that you do? Why do you have to work this out in your marriage? Why do you have to get this straight in your finances? Why do you have to walk in integrity at work? Why do you have to serve in the local church? Why do you need to be doing these types of things because of the glory of God? It is the wicked who has no regard for God's glory. It is the righteous who lives always and only for the glory of God. Peter says the same thing. 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 11. He says, "Whatever or whoever speaks speaking of someone who is preaching, it, he is to do that as one who is uttering God's uh, excuse, speaking the utterances of God." Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To whom belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever, amen. This is the ultimate motive for everything that we do, that God would be glorified do you think like that do you think Lord I want my service today when I walk in church today and when I when I get up here to do worship and I get back there to do sound or when I'm setting up the coffee or when I'm doing whatever it is that I'm doing I want to do everything for the glory of God Colossians chapter 3 this is very relevant for us whatever you do in word and deed ironically that's exactly what we're supposed to do in the local church all ministry in the local church is word and deed ministry everything that we do it's either a deed or a spoken word and we're called to do both but whatever we do do all in the name of the lord jesus giving thanks through him to god the father and then colossians 3 23 whatever you do do your work heartily as for the lord rather than for men you see the apostles are simply Explicating everything that Jesus taught. Everything the apostles taught, they got from Jesus. <laughs> these are not their original thoughts. They learned it from their master, their rabbi, their teacher, their Lord. The Spirit had brought all of these teachings into their heart. And what were they but the, the, the expansion of the teachings and sayings of Jesus Christ. And so the essence of true prayer is first rooted in true piety. I pray that we will be concerned about true piety, brothers and sisters. We live in, we're living in an age, even in a church age right now. And what I mean by that is just, we're living in a time, I think, where piety is hit a real low. No one really cares about piety in this fast tech, technological, social media, Twitter, Facebook age. We're too busy. For piety we're too busy for prayer we're too busy for personal communion with God our lives are too busy we our schedules are too filled up who has time to focus on piety and so this is a call for us to focus on piety why because there's always a danger of hypocrisy why because there's the potential to forfeit our reward why because we will produce superficial fruit that's why and likewise to know where true, true piety resides. How do we know that we're truly being pious? Well, I don't know. Have you harnessed the secret of true piety? That true piety exists chiefly in the secret of our heart? That true piety is chiefly done in the secret motive of our heart? That God sees everything that we do and know that That he will reward us for our secret things? Are we we storing our treasures in heaven? This will make all the difference in the world. It's either living to be pleasing to him or living to be pleasing to other people. Father, oh Lord, we confess our propensity for hypocritical piety is great. And we confess that we need your help to be genuine, to be authentic, and in the simplest way so that we can all remember the sermon today, to be like Jesus in our religion, in our communion with the Father, in our service to others. Father, there is so much false religion around us Especially here, American Christianity is filled with a sort of moralistic, therapeutic religion that has no real contact with the living God. And we say, Lord, deliver us from our idolatry. Deliver us, Lord, from our propensity to, instead of having truth in the inward parts, to have deception in the inward parts, to have hypocrisy in the inward parts, to have ungodliness. In the inward parts where no one sees but yet Lord you see you see it all together and so God we pray purify our piety and as we move towards understanding your pattern of prayer help us Lord to practice in our prayers Lord help us to cultivate greater genuine prayer forgive us Lord for rushing through our prayers forgive us Lord for not communing with you in our prayers but just doing what's expected of Christians to rattle off a couple of requests and move on. Lord, let it not be that any of our hearts would be there, but instead that we would long for true communion with God. We bless your holy name, Father, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.